Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we honor you and we bless you for this opportunity to get into your word on this morning. Holy Spirit, you are indeed welcome in this house to teach, reveal, cause us to understand your word so that we can apply it to our lives. We pray, Lord, for articulation of your heart. We thank you, Lord, that we have ears to receive what you have for us on this morning. We thank you, Lord, even for those that will listen by way of recording. We thank you, Lord, that you would anoint every ear to receive what you have for them. So they may hear what thus says the Spirit of God. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Let's make this confession of our faith. Say, Father, I've come to receive revelation, wisdom, and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on an everyday basis. Amen. This is, let's start here, which is not in the slides, but let's start here uh, this morning and we'll tie this all together uh, some way. Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Let me read now the King James Version of the Bible. Psalm 62. Amen. Psalm 62. You have to say amen. I was uh, watching the broadcast and I realized that sometimes I may go a little fast. <laughs> you know, it's just you know, a lot, you know, you know, you know, but it's all right. <laughs> Psalm 62, amen. Yeah, I, I've seen sometimes as well that, uh, you know, when it's on the screen, I'm like, well, you know, that's why God gave you some notes. <laughs> that's, amen. Can't be holding up the service because, you know, can't, you can't find the scriptures. But, uh, amen. Psalm 62. Let's look at that really quick. Uh, the King James Version of the Bible, the Bible says, Truly my soul waiteth upon God, for from him, brother, cometh all of my salvation. Now watch this verse number two. So he indicates the soul, my mind, my will, and my emotions are waiting on you, God, because you are the source of my salvation. He says, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. The correlation between verse number one and verse number two is vitally important that we understand. My soul is able to wait on God because he is your rock. He is your defense. And because he's my rock and because he's your defense, that's why I have the ability not to be moved. Moved by what? The circumstances, the situations, the issues of life. Because my soul waits on God. And then drop down to verse number five. This is a Psalm of David. He says, my soul waiteth, my soul, he says, waits thou only upon God. Notice he says, my expectation is from him. My expectation is from him. You know, that hit me in my heart this morning. The thing that you are expecting, that you are looking for, that you are in faith for, it originates from God. 
So he says, my soul, my mind, my will, and my emotion can be rested because God, you are my salvation. You are my rock. You are the one that my soul waits on so that I won't be moved. And he says, my very expectation, the only reason why I can expect is because of you, because you're still my rock. Now notice what he says again. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. It's like David wants to get over a point here. That when you place your expectations and your expected hope on the right place, God becomes the rock of your life. Notice what he says here, verse number seven. My God is my salvation, my glory and my glory, the rock of my strength. The rock of my strength. And my refuge is in God. My refuge, I find my hiding place in God. God is the one that allows me to be unmovable in my mind, my will, and my emotions. When you try to do that in your own strength, yeah, you're going to have issues. Today, tomorrow, the next day, when things, when life's issues come about, my emotions go up and down, up and down. But when you stabilize yourself, not in your but in the ability of your God, then it becomes stable. He says, verse number eight, trust in him at all times. So it indicates to us that it's not a one-time event. I have to make as an act of my will, a decision that I'm going to trust in God, not one time or one event, but all the time. He says, ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then he says, Selah, meditate on that. God is a refuge for us. The question is not whether or not God is a refuge for us. It's a question as to whether or not you're going to receive him as a refuge for you, for your emotions, for what you're going through, for the issues of life, whether or not you're going to rest on the rock of who he is. Now let's look over really quick at, um, Verse number 10, drop down once more. Scripture says, trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. So he says, do not put your trust, your confidence in oppression. Because sometimes we do. We allow the oppressive things that are taking place in our life to speak louder than our relationship with God, who is supposed to be our rock. He says, and become not vain in robbery, if riches increase, watch this, set not your heart upon them. Why must he say this? If your riches increase, don't allow your confidence to shift from being in God and then become into, into money. This is one issue that a lot of people have, even when promotion shows up, that, that little by little by little, we say, hey, we trust. God, but little by little, we start shifting over from trusting God to trusting money. He says, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Verse 11, God has spoken once, twice. He says, have I heard this? That power belongeth unto God. God is the one that gives you promotion. God is the one that sustains you. Sounds once again like David is reiterating, God is your rock. When you have the correct perspective, regardless of what's taking place on the outside, when is good in your house, 
when it's bad in your house, I am stable because I have my confidence, not in my ability or the circumstances, but in the rock who is God. It is something we all have to continuously remind ourselves of. That's why David says, Selah, think, stop and meditate is what the word Selah means. Stop and meditate on this. God is everything that you will ever need. He's the one that gives you the power to get wealth. He's the one that sustains your life through healing and from sickness and disease. He's the one that sustains your life through health. God is everything that you need. And if everything in your life originates with him and the relationship you have with him, everything else in life will flow in its proper course. Now, having said that, let's look over in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. We have been talking about for the last couple of weeks, what does it mean, the prescription for a failure-proof life? The prescription for a failure-proof life and what that actually means. And we've defined success and failure not by worldly standards, but by how God himself defines success. God defines success much different or very different from the way the world does. The world looks a com completely at the externals and says, this person is a success, this person is a failure. This person is somebody that we can admire, this person is not. I was watching something uh, the last two days, I've, I've been watching, because you know, I watch TV every now and then. The story of what Janet Jackson and uh, what occurred to me, particularly from the story, and I, I see biographies and see documentaries on various people's lives, the thing that occurred to me that, that, that was the most interesting is that the world claps for her. And I'm not saying anything disparagingly against her, but it's amazing what the world claps for. It's amazing the documentaries that the world will do as opposed to what God claps for. It's amazing the people that, that the world would say this is a picture of success and somebody to be admired versus what God says. Usually the person that God says is successful, the person that God says that's who I want you to emulate, the person that he says that's the kind of people that I want you to be like, they don't make documentaries about them because the world system doesn't value them. They won't make a documentary about maybe perhaps a pastor that stayed in the community, that blessed the community, that opened up stuff, did all kind of things and, 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 and blessed the community in multiple ways. There won't be no documentary about that. But now somebody that just stood on stage and sung or was on television and essentially acted like somebody else. We clap for that. We give awards to that. We do all kind of things to applaud people that didn't necessarily make a difference per se, but all they did is perform. And unfortunately, this kind of mentality is seeping its way into the church, whereby we are more interested in performance for men and not for God. God says the difference between how I define success and failure has everything to do with whether or not you did what I assigned you to do. Did you fulfill the call that was on your life? Or did you have it your way? Did you fulfill the purpose that you were created for? Or did you just simply go along, get along for the applause of men? God says the difference between how I define success is how I define success 
is my will, which ultimately gives God glory and also blesses humanity for a righteous purpose, which is always located in first their salvation. Now, we have said that the first prescription, therefore, of embracing um, or this prescription for a failure proof life is located in the embrace of discipleship. The embrace of discipleship. And we have spent a long time talking in regards to what that actually means. I'm not going to review that for the sake of time this morning. But we are going to look at this area that's found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship, which is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. But it's also located in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, out of two, mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. There is a cost for discipleship. There is a cost to live this life of faith. Jesus said, then Jesus said, verse number 24 out of Matthew chapter 16, King James Version. Then Jesus said unto his disciples. So he's not talking once again to everybody. He's talking to a specific group of people that have decided that he, they're going to be learners and pupils of him. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, let him. Now, notice that you, he says, let him deny himself. He didn't say God's going to deny this area in his life. He says, let him deny himself. The word there, he says, take up his cross and follow me. The word to deny himself is interpreted in another translation as self-denial. Let him deny himself, self-denial, or to set aside your selfish interests. So, in order to genuinely follow Jesus, that means I'm going to have to set aside my agenda, what I want, the things that, that perhaps the direction I want it to go for something else. I have to set aside my, my opinions in order to embrace his opinions. I have to set aside the thing maybe that I thought I was going to do for success, to receive and embrace his directives for my life. You know, I see this a lot of times as well when we think in terms of uh, moving from singlehood to marriage, from marriage to having children. One of the things, if you do it the correct way, that begins to happen is it begins to separate you from your selfishness. This is the reason why God says it's not good that men be all one. Why? Because he is he's considering nothing but himself. He's concerned about himself. This is a struggle that, that single people have to watch out for in their own lives, that they're not just concerned about you and what's going on in your life, that you extend to someone else. Well, this becomes a good practice because when you get married, now I'm supposed to be concerned not just about me and my interests, but about her interests or by his interests. What's going on in their life? What's happening with them? I am not supposed to be concerned just simply about me. So it's almost like God said, when you take this next level, it begins to strip off another level of selfishness. When you start having kids, what's supposed to happen in regards to that is you're supposed to take off another level. Now I got to be concerned about the life and the welfare of these children that are in my house. Whether or not they're growing academically, whether or not they're growing spiritually. So what's happening is I have to become second, then I become third, then even I become fourth as I have an interest for what's going on in the life of someone else.
Jesus is essentially saying he must deny himself. If you're going to embrace the, the person of Jesus, if you're going to embrace the purpose that's on your life, it does require that you deny yourself. It does require that your self-interest has to die and you have to assume or take up the kingdom's agenda for your life. I remember a couple years ago, my father was in a nursing home and I was at my job in Shelby, which was a, a couple miles, at least almost two counties over from where he was. I was sitting in my office and I was working on some things and I was just like, I kept hearing on the inside of me, get up and go over, I think at the time, to Union County and I want you to go right now. Well, on the inside of me, I said, I don't want to go. I don't feel like it. I ain't in the mood. I kept hearing, go now. I don't want to go. He ain't never get up for me. Just drop things to see what's going on in my life. He said, I want you to go. Now, at that point, see, this is where it happens in our lives. God ain't going to push you out the door now. He's going to say, do this. And a lot of times what will happen is he'll prompt you again. Do this. And maybe in one, one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Ghost. Do this. Now you got a decision. What are you going to do? Are you going to set down yourself interest are you going to deny yourself to embrace him now you say i follow jesus except when he tells me to do something i don't want to do when he says go this direction do you go that direction or you you have a fight now i did get up and put my time in for the day and i went out to union county at that time but one of the things i was doing on the way was complaining about it and God began dealing with me in that area. He said, well, son, if you're going to go out here and complain about it, you know you don't get credit for that either. I said, wait a minute now. <laughs> so you want me to go somewhere I don't want to go, and then you want me to have a right attitude? Why I go? This is too hard. <laughs> he says, <clears throat> let him deny himself. Now notice the next area. He says, take up his cross. Take up his cross. Another translation literally says, take up his cross daily, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come. The cross in this time period, when the disciples heard it, represent a place of death. It represented a place where, you know, in the way the government system was, fair or wrong, aside for the moment, it was a place where the conviction of criminals existed. And so they placed them on the cross as a way of execution. And essentially what Jesus is saying, that the person that's desiring to follow me must place areas in their life daily on the cross of execution. That you've literally got to die to yourself daily and not just Sunday. If I'm really going to follow God, that means, yes, there are a lot of times in your life where you won't get your way and you've got to be comfortable with that. This area has to die. This area can't exist. This area has to, and that doesn't mean that you kill this area of carnality, but you carry the coffin around behind you just in case. Just in case. Now, I crucified this book of cuss, but if you get on my right side when the time I'm tired, I got this coffin and I'll resurrect the old man today just for you. <laughs> he says, You crucify it daily. Which means there must be a situation whereby this issue shows up in my life and I got to make another decision today that I made on Monday. I got to make a decision on Thursday to crucify it again. 
I got to make a decision come Saturday to crucify. It's something that's routine. He says, take up your cross daily. Express a willingness, as the Amplified says, to endure. A willingness to endure. Not just to endure, but a willingness. God, you want me to put this on the cross. You want to put me to put that area on the cross. And God, because I trust you, because you are my right, I have a willingness to do so. And then he says, follow me. So he says, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow me means to believe in me, as the Amplified says, to believe in me. You first got to understand that God is worthy of you following him. I have an agenda. I'm going somewhere. I believe this for my life. God says, I want you to put that up on the cross and let it stay there and follow me. So many disciples during the time uh, when Jesus physically walked the earth, one, with one of the things you see, the thread, is that they said, well, Lord, we want to follow you. He says, okay, leave everything and come this way. They say, well, well, wait now. He says, okay, I want you to the rich young ruler. He says to him, I want you to go sell everything. Now, he didn't say go give it away, but he says, I want you to sell everything and I want you to follow me. He said, wait, wait now, wait, wait, wait now. I'm, you know, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm, you know, we, we can't be doing all that to follow you. He says, to follow me essentially means I got to believe that Jesus is worth me following. Conforming to my example in living and if need be in suffering. Jesus never asked us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Willing this area of suffering. At some point in time, we're going to get into more of a definition as to what does it mean to actually suffer for the Lord. Prescription number one, again, is to embrace discipleship. I decide that I am going to be a disciple. I decide as an act of my will that I'm going to be a disciple not just on Sundays but every day. I decide as an act of my will to place myself in the environment where God is intended for me to grow and to develop. I decide as an act of my will that I'm going to imitate Jesus and not imitate who I saw on TV. I decide to do this. God doesn't force me. God doesn't push me. I made up my mind, as the old song says, and no turning back. Prescription number two, therefore, is this new area that you kind of saw evident in this video. And we're going to get into more in regards to that as time unfolds. This area of embracing servanthood. Embracing servanthood. So prescription number one is to embrace discipleship, but prescription number two is to embrace servanthood. Embrace servanthood. Normally right here is where I will give you a definition of servanthood, but we're going to give that at the very end. Let's look in our Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. That's why I said I have learned, I am learning. Y'all pray for me. Slow down a little bit. <laughs> I was looking at some old videos and I said, yeah, I can't act like everybody, everybody read all this this week. <laughs> Matthew chapter 20. When you have to say amen. For the sake of time, let me give you the scenario. We're looking at starting at verse number 20. Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 20. Scripture says, then came to him uh, the mother of Zebubi, children of 
her son, uh, children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Verse 21. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? Or what do you want? And she essentially goes on to say, I got these two boys that are your disciples. And my desire, Jesus, is that you put one boy on your left side and one boy on your right side in your kingdom. He said, she says essentially, my heart's desire is that they are successful. That you set one up as a place of authority in your kingdom. That's my desire for my boys, Lord. And Jesus goes on to say essentially, you don't even understand what you're asking. Can they, can they even drink of the cup that I am drinking of? You're asking for them to be promoted to an area of leadership, but they, can they even sit in the position that which you're praying or asking for? Now, notice this, though. This always trips me out. Verse 24. And when the ten, I said these are two disciples, their mama went up to Jesus and said, would you promote my boys? The other two, now, now watch this. When the other ten, the other ten, what, disciples heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. The, uh, the, uh, another translation says they were indignant with them. So then they heard about mama going up there saying, want to promote these two disciples. And the other ten are a little pissed off about this now. You want these two to be promoted. What do you want us to do? What about us, Jesus? How dare you pray or ask God to promote your two boys and we're all here together? What's going on here? So you want them to be promoted over me and to have lordship over us? The Passion Translation says that the other ten were listening to all things and they were jealous and a jealous anger arose among them against the two brothers. Now, one of the things that's real interesting about this passage of scriptures is, is that it illustrates to us that the disciples are just like us. We're talking about 12 preachers. And essentially, the mama went up there and said, look here, make my boys the bishop and let the rest of them do whatever they're going to do. But I want you to put my, my, my oldest over here and my youngest over there in your kingdom. Now, the other preachers hear about it and they're getting kind of mad about it. Lord, what's, what, what, what? They, they ask, what? Now watch this, verse 26. But it shall not be, he says, so among you. But whosoever, he says, will be great among you, let him be your minister. Verse 27 says, whosoever will be chief among you, he says, let him be your servant. Let him be your servant. He says, no, how this works in this system is that the one that's the greatest is not chief, but he's the servant. He might have the position as chief, but he's still servant. He says, verse 28, even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and he uh, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, essentially, and whosoever will be chief among you also must be your servant. He says, whosoever, as the Amplified, wishes to be first shall be, uh, shall be your willing and humble slave. He says, I'm going to shift this paradigm 
from your thinking in regards to what leadership genuinely looks like. You have a thought process that leadership is about telling people what to do. You go here, you do this, you do that. But he says, how I want to shift this paradigm is that you understand that the person that's giving the orders is serving the people that he's giving the orders to. I want you to shift in the way you think about what leadership actually looks like. It's not about you, but it's about serving the people in which you are leading. He says, essentially, you think what we talked about on Thursday, the paradigm shifts. Moses is a representative of somebody that had it made. He was away from Egypt. He wasn't a slave. He lived his life. And then one day God says, I want you to sacrifice it all and go back and help those people that you left those 40 years ago. I want you to go essentially serve them. Now from the people's perspective, he was there to lead them out. But what he was actually there is to serve freedom as God has directed into their lives. When God calls you to an area of leadership, when God calls you to a specific call, it is never about you, but it's about you serving others in this area of servanthood. Flip over, if you will, to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. So he says in Matthew chapter 20, he talks about the greatest among you will be a servant. Matthew chapter 23 seems to say something very similar, something similar. It says at a verse number 11, but he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant. He that is the greatest among you shall be the servant. He says the son of man didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He says, essentially, if you're going to be great, once again, in the kingdom of God, it requires that you become a humble and willing servant. Let's back up to verse number eight. I'm going to give a little context and teaching this morning. Verse number eight says, I have the King James Version of the Bible, but be not ye called, he says, but be not ye called rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ. All and all ye are brethren. He says, verse number nine, and call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven. He says, neither be ye masters or called masters. For one is your master, even Christ. And then he says, for he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant. Let's back this thing up and break this down. So he essentially, he's, he's in a group there, in a group of, of preachers and rabbis at this time. And of course, they're having another issue again. Regards to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Is it going to be Peter's ministry that's the greatest? Or is it going to be Andrew's ministry that's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus got to reiterate once again to these guys that no, the greatness in the kingdom is only found in going down and becoming a servant. And he illustrates, he says, listen, don't call each one of you among yourselves rabbi. And then he says something that's very distinctive that sticks out to me. He says, don't call anyone on earth father. Don't call anyone on earth father. Look at this in the Amplified. In verse number nine, he says, and do not call anyone on earth who guides you spiritually your father. For the one who is your father is he who is in heaven. Now, 
Don't put this together this, this morning, and y'all, y'all walk with me here as I, as I tread out into this, this water. You've heard the term spiritual father before, yes? A lot of people, that, that seems to be the corn word that we hear these days. That's my spiritual father. That's my spiritual dad. We hear this all of the time from different ministry gifts. And I even heard a ministry gift say one time, well, it's because he gave birth to me. And as I look at the scriptures and Jesus says distinctly, do not call anyone on earth who guides you spiritually your father. We seem to have a contradiction, do we not? For the one who is your father is he who is in heaven. The one who is your father, again, having a proper perspective in regards to ministerial gifts is vitally important. Jesus says, don't do this. Have the proper perspective in regards to your spiritual leadership. Turn over, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, the King James Version of the Bible. Let's put all of this together so we can make sure that we accurately see this area. Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians, notice where he's speaking. He's speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, yes? That means chapter 4 comes after chapter, this is, this is, this is quiz, chapter 3. Chapter 4, therefore, also comes before chapter 5. He says something here that a lot of people home into, but they neglect what he said in the previous chapters. What does he say here? He says, verse number 15, For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers for in Christ. Notice he says, Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. We've said this and we looked at this. In the Amplified Version of the Bible it says, For even if you were uh, to have 10,000 teachers to guide you, he says, in Christ, yet you have not many fathers. What is he saying, Paul? And the Amplified breaks this out really, really good. And he says, who led you to Christ and who assumed responsibility for you. For I have become your father, but not in me, but he says, in Christ through the good news of salvation. He says, I become essentially like a father to you, not in me. I didn't give birth to you. You didn't come out of me, but he says, in Christ, I become a father to you. Why? Because I've assumed responsibility like a father for you. So when we are talking in regards to spiritual fathers, we are talking not about people that gave birth to you. But we are talking about people that have assumed responsibility for you spiritually. That's what we mean when we say spiritual father. Not what we are hearing today. That's my spiritual father. They, they, they birth. No, you will birth. Now flip over, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, as we've read before. Scripture, this is Paul, this is Peter speaking. He says, born, uh, being born again, not a corruptible seed. Corruptible seed. But incorruptible seed by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So you are born first naturally of corruptible seed. That's natural birth. The day you get born again, you are born of incorruptible seed, which is by the word of God. You are spiritually born again because you are born anew in your spirit by the Holy Ghost. 
Romans chapter 8. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 8. It's going to be a little bit this morning. Romans chapter 8. I got to set some of this stuff in its proper seat. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. And verse number 14. I have the King James Version of the Bible. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, notice the term, they are sons of God. Sons of God indicates an area of paternity. Verse number 15, he says, For ye have not, watched this, received the spirit of bondage again into fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, which literally means Daddy God. Verse 16, the spirit itself, it really should say the spirit himself, beareth witness with our spirit that we are, notice the term, children of God. If we are children of God, that means that God is our Heavenly Father. Now, when I was tasked to talk about this, I, it, it's taken me probably three years to get to talking about this. I began looking at this, and anytime somebody says Father to me, it means something different because, you know, I didn't have uh, the best situation with my natural father. And so God in my life became my Father. And so I get real protective when somebody says that that's, that's your son or that's, somebody, that's your son or, or you know, taking, taking this area that, that for me in my heart only belongs to God. Because my natural father wasn't there. So when the scripture says that he'll be a father to the fatherless, man, I took that and I took that in my heart as, yeah, that's who he is in, to me. He's not just God, but he's Abba Father. He's Daddy God. And so any natural man that's corruptible, that comes around and says, yeah, you're my, you're my son. I, I'm like, no, no, we have to have the right perspective in regards to that. Now, what is that perspective? It's the perspective that Paul is essentially depositing. I am your spiritual father in the sense that I am assuming responsibility for you. And because I'm assuming responsibility for you, because God is giving charge uh, to you, from uh, of you, from him, that essentially means that, yeah, that becomes somebody that's a point of accountability to you in your life. Now, let's keep going. First Corinthians, where I said before, first Corinthians chapter four shows up uh, what we just read a minute ago. First Corinthians chapter four shows up before first Corinthians chapter three. Yes. Let's look at first Corinthians chapter three going back. <clears throat> Paul says in first Corinthians chapter four. He declares himself to be a father, yes? But now if we just pluck that scripture up in and of itself, we negate what he said in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, that allows us to understand his perspective for saying what he says in chapter 4. Now look at this in chapter 3. He says, verse number, I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation for the sake of time. He says, verse number four, when one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, another says, I am a follower, I follow Paul, aren't you acting just like people of the world? What was going on in this church during the time of the church of Corinth is that Apollos, he was a powerful man of God. And we believe him to come from northern Africa. So I think he was a, a, a black man that was preaching back during that time period. And you know how we do, we preach up something. So he came to that church and he started preaching up something and they'll sort of say, hallelujah, yes God. And just shouting and all these kind of things. And Paul said, okay, I might not have that kind of gift. Let me straighten out some stuff theologically. 
He says, essentially, what's happening in this church is Peter's been down there. I mean, man, bless God, they are the top preachers of the day. Peter's been down there preaching up something. Apollos came down and he started preaching up something. Paul came down and he was teaching the word. He was teaching up something. And then little by little, the church started to say, no, man, I follow Peter's doctrine. And the next one began to say, no, no, Apollos, he's my spiritual father. I follow him. And no bunch of people said, no, 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 man, all y'all got this wrong. We follow Paul. And this is where Paul picks up and says, y'all been going around saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Another says, I'm a follower of Paul. Aren't you acting just like the world? Has not this spirit gotten back in the church today? That we begin to evaluate Christians based on who you follow. You follow Brother Copeland? Or you follow this one over here? Do you follow Bishop Jakes? Who, who you with? I, I am of the potter's house. Yes, amen. No, no, well, y'all don't have it right. We, we come from Eagle Mountain. That's who we are. We're, we're the people of the word of faith. Paul is essentially saying, aren't we acting like the world? Verse number five. After all, who is Apollos? He says, who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. He says, let's bring this back in its proper perspective. These great ministry gifts are people that obeyed God to do the assignment, but they were only here to point you back to who you are supposed to be, which is following Jesus. Verse number six, watch this. He says, I planted the seed in your heart. And Apollos watered it. But watch this. He says, but it was God who made it grow. Drop down to verse number nine for the sake of time. Verse number nine. It says, for we both, uh, we are both God's workers and you are God's field and you are God's building. Verse 10, because of God's grace to me. I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be careful. So he essentially says, watch this again. Where does this come in the letter that Paul wrote? It comes before he talks about spiritual fathership. He says we got to have proper perspective as regards to ministry gift. Understanding that, yes, we are workers with Christ. We are doing so to point you back to have a relationship with Jesus. This becomes vitally important when we understand this, how when he says, you got many people that are teaching you many different things. He says, but all these folks, Apollos might have showed up and everything, but he doesn't have the relationship that I have with you because a lot of y'all got born again under my ministry. And I've assumed responsibility for you. I've assumed responsibility for the growth of you because God has given me charge in your life. The fathership that he's referring to is not some of the stuff that we hear today. He's talking about, I assume responsibility for your development because God has given me charge in your life to be in the spiritual authority. Not this concept that we see deposited today. Let's look at verse or uh, chapter 11. Chapter 11. <clears throat> 
This is important because when Jesus says the greatest among you shall be a servant, he's distinctly dealing with this spirit where we have essentially lifted up man to a point of idolatry where we are now worshiping preachers. We are saying we want to be like preachers. We want to be like that one, this one, etc. And you know, I'm be honest with you, in my own life, I had to repent of some areas of this in my own life because I looked at certain ministry gifts. I want to be just like that one. Jesus said, well, what about me? I want to be, no, Lord, that was all good. And all them scriptures about you and your ministry. That's nice, Lord. But I mean, really, now this was on TV. The perspective, little by little, becomes like the world. We admire people based on the stuff we see. And God says, no, I want you to have a proper perspective that is me first. Now watch this. Paul says, watch this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, where does chapter 11 fall? Thank you. <clears throat> so it is a continuous letter. So you can't pluck out chapter 4, as some do, and wag it around without putting the context on chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. You can't pluck out chapter 4 and not put the context of where he goes on to say some other things in chapter 11. Notice what he says in chapter 11. We've said this and quoted this. He says, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. The reason why you follow me is because I'm following Christ. During this particular time period, Paul was writing these letters. And so they become the foundation of how they learn how to walk by faith and walk in this new thing called the way, which is Christianity as we know it today. And so Paul says, I'm showing the template how this works, but I'm showing you as I follow Christ myself. I'm not saying essentially follow me as your father. He says, follow me as somebody that has a super responsibility for you and it's following Christ. And that's exactly what we are supposed to look like. Let's look over at John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5, and I'm going to speedily close. I knew this morning was going to be more of a teaching session. Like I said, we got to set some of this stuff in its proper seat, particularly in this church, so that we have proper perspective. So is Pastor Smith saying, we ain't supposed to have any spiritual fathers and they just speaking again? No, that's not what I'm saying. What Pastor Smith is saying is have the right perspective. A lot of times you might hear me use the term mentor instead of son. That doesn't negate the son aspect, but it's, it's to give those that listen to me the proper perspective. I'm following him, my pastor, as he follows Christ. My pastor or my, what we would call spiritual father, is one that's assumed responsibility for me. This is one of the things I had to discover in my own life, like I said and alluded to before, is that all the preachers I respond to, and I like, and I like to hear that one, been to that conference, been to that meeting, I had to go back and figure out which one has assumed responsibility for me. Which one licensed me? Which one can I get on the phone right now? If, I, if somebody's going in the hospital in my house, who can I call? There are a lot of people I can't call. There are a lot of people I admire. I ain't got the number. Who has assumed responsibility for me? If you want to say that's your spiritual father, absolutely, that's fine. I think you'd be scripturally accurate to say so, as long as you have the proper perspective. He didn't give birth to me. <laughs> All right. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. 
Now watch this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth, uh, doeth the Son likewise. So Jesus essentially is saying, The Son, when I showed up and put on this flesh suit, it didn't, I did not come for my own agenda. I came to fulfill the will of my father. I came to do what he says to do, to do what I see him doing. He says, verse 20, for the father loveth the son and shows him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, which uh, these that ye may marvel. Jesus said, essentially, everything I'm doing, you see me doing is on assignment. He says, essentially, I am displaying to you what servanthood looks like. Somebody that's submitted to the will of the Father. Paul is, is showing us essentially the same thing. I'm submitted to Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. They give us, there I say, a template of what it means to be a servant. And that's located in what I define as principle one, which is love of God and submission to God's assignment or to the assignment in which God has given you. If I'm deciding that I'm going to be a servant, it requires a love of God and a submission to the assignment that God has given me. So essentially, what does that mean? That means that servanthood plus mission, the assignment that God has given you, is what gives you authority and, dare I say, the anointing in your life. A lot of people like to seek the mission, but they ain't got the servanthood in place. If you don't have both parts of the equation, you can't be anointed. Jesus says, essentially, I didn't just come here showing up to do what I wanted to do. He says, I'm doing what my father said to do. Therefore, you see this authority I walk in. You see this anointing I walk in. It's because I'm a servant and I'm doing the mission. When both are in their proper seat, God says, that person, I can flow my anointing in their life. That person will walk in a seat of authority because they're submitted and they are a person that is submitted to the mission. They're submitted to God first from a position of love. I'm not doing it from religion. I'm doing it out of relationship. And when that's in his prophecy and I'm doing what I'm doing as an assigned person of God, then the anointing flows. I want you to write this down. Get this in your spirit. Your value is found in your sonship or your relationship with God, not your work. Your value is found in your relationship or your sonship, not your work. This has to be in its proper perspective as well. This is where burnout begins to happen in the life of so many people, that they think that their value is found in what they do instead of the relationship that they have. God says, when you have the proper perspective that I love you first, my love of God is in his proper seat. Everything I do extends for from that relationship of love. That's what prevents burnout. So what is a servant? Let's define it here. A kingdom servant, therefore, is a disciple that is submitted to the will of God to fulfill God's mission within the earth, thereby giving God or giving glory to God through their life. A kingdom servant is a disciple that is submitted to the will of God 
to fulfill God's mission within the earth, thereby giving glory to God with their life. That is the person that God gives authority to. That is the person that God flows his anointing through. The person that's submitted. The person that has their love relationship with God in its perfect, perfect seat. This is something that people don't understand as well. They think that you can have one of these things flip-flop and it still works. No, you got to have both in its proper seat. Let me give you these five keys and then we'll close. These five keys and, these, and we'll close here. Things that we need to understand about servanthood plus mission equals authority. Authority is the anointing or the unction to function. Number one is your authority or anointing is contingent upon your assignment. Your authority and your anointing is contingent upon your assignment. If Jesus says, I only do what I hear my father say do and I only do and say what he says for me to say, Jesus is a submitted person. He shows us this is what it looks like. He's our template. Your anointing, your authority is only, it's contingent upon your assignment. If you decide to go rogue and you can't figure out why well, ain't nobody submitting to you, it's because you're not submitted to God. God says we got to have this in his proper seat. You got to be submitted where I tell you to go. When you submit to where I tell you to go, then I can flow my power and people will have, a, you will have authority in that area of your life. You know, people can tell when you walk in authority versus when you don't. People can tell when there's something that's on you. When you are in a job versus somebody up, up the hall or somebody else. Now, the difference is I'm in my assignment and they just got a job. I've been deployed as light and darkness and they just got hired. And so when I speak to the atmosphere, I speak to it in authority because I'm a deployed kingdom citizen on deployment for the king. Not just somebody that showed up here. Number two, watch this. You are not, therefore, anointed to do whatever it is you want to do. You are not anointed to do whatever it is that you want to do. If Jesus wasn't, you ain't either. You ain't anointed to go where you want to go. You are anointed to go where he says to go, be where he says to be. This is something, it ain't gonna lie to you. It took me a while to get this, because like I said to you, and you hear me say this frequently, I wanted a church in Charlotte. That's where I wanted to be. Nothing worked in Charlotte. I wanted to be there. It took me a long time to figure out, now he wanted you in Gastonia. He put you on Gaston Street when you got to Charlotte as the first house that you lived in. You thought you'd get it, son. It's in Gastonia. You are not anointed to go wherever it is that you want to go. You are anointed to be where he has assigned you. Number three, your authority or your anointing is grace displayed to grant God glory through your life. Servanthood plus mission equals authority. Servanthood plus mission equals authority. You are graced or anointed. I'm sorry, you are anointed. Your authority is a grace display to grant glory to God. So when you go rogue, do what you want to do. It's for your glory and not his. Number four, and we're going to break this out as we go forth into the month of February. Your servanthood, your servanthood positions you for power, provision, and protection. Your servanthood is what positions you for power, position, and protection. And I was praying one day about where we're to go in this series. And I said, Lord, I mean, this ain't exactly coming out exactly like the way I thought it was going to when we started this back in December. He said, right, because I'm the one that tells you what to do. 
And the reason why we are talking about this area of servanthood, and it comes right here in the month of February, because Black History Month. Black History Month is such a display, particularly in this nation, of people that submitted to the will of God to bring forth change in this country. People that, that laid it all down to deny themselves and put up their cross daily so that America would start the march towards equality like it was always intended to be. There are so many people that we can look at in, in just in this area of black history that laid it all down. One of my heroes, my personal heroes is Harriet Tubman. Not the Harriet Tubman perhaps that, that some have made, but that's one of, my, one of my concerns about the newest movie. I'm glad they didn't take it out because you can't really talk about Harriet Tubman if you don't talk about Harriet Tubman's faith. That she was a prophet of God that heard God's voice of how move this way, go that way. And Harriet, the reason why they talk about her like, her, like she's Moses is because Harriet had hers. She was free. She didn't have to go back. But she decided to obey God and go back to rescue, dare I say, a nation of people to lay it all down. She shows us a modern day illustration of what it means to be a servant because she was anointed for the assignment. Your servanthood positions you for power. Your servanthood positions you for provision. Your servanthood positions you for protection. Now watch this, number five, trust is authenticated through trial. You can't say you trust God, and then when you go through something, then your trust is all, oh, I'll throw that away, I got to do my own thing, doing my own thing. That's not how this works. Trust is always authenticated to see whether it's genuine through this area of trial. But watch this, submission though is always authenticated through the choices that you make. Am I gonna do what he said? Well, let's look at the choices you've been making. You say, I'm a servant guy. Yeah, but we look at the choices you've been making over the last five years. It says, well, you wasn't for the last five years, maybe in the next five. Can I look at the things that you're deciding to do with your daily activities? Can I look at the things that you're doing in your weekly activities, your monthly activities, and can I denote from the things that you are doing that, yes, that person is genuinely a servant of God because they're submitted to servanthood and mission. Servanthood and mission. Humility and mission. Humility in doing what God says over what they want. Denying of themselves, taking up the cross and following him even when they don't get what they want. There's a distinction mark that is going to be drawn as we go forward between those that are servants and those that are just simply church folk. And that's one of the reasons why this church is called the training center because this church is for those that have decided that they want to be servants of God, disciples of God, which in and of itself means this church ain't for everybody because everybody don't want to do that. There's a lot of it don't take all of that in this region. And so we are calling for those that hear the voice of God to say, now I want to be a servant. God, I want you to use my life and make a difference in this earth. God, I submit and lay down my will for yours. Let's pray. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we honor you and we bless you for this opportunity to have gotten into your word this morning. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that we decide daily to lay it down our agendas, our will, to lay it down on you as you are our rock, 
You are the one that keeps us stable in the midst of changing world, the changing world around us. You are the one that keeps us safe in the midst of, of different things that threaten our very lives, God. We rest in you. And because, Lord, you can't be moved, we decide to, to plant our flag in you. And so, therefore, we thank you by faith. We'll not be moved because we trust in who you are. God, we decide to be disciples. And God, we decide to be servants. And for this, Lord, if no one else claps for us, God, we thank you that as long as you are happy with our lives, God, we're all right. Our desire, God, is to hear that word, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, we just thank you that we put it all on the table for you. And we thank you, Lord, we look for provision as we serve you. We look for protection as you serve, as we serve you. We thank you, Lord, for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's giving time. Amen. It's giving time. On the screen, let's see here. I, I did not write this down. <clears throat> That's what I need. Thank you so much. Amen. Psalms 37, verse 23, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his ways. The steps, the steps are ordered. They are arranged by the Lord, and he delights in his ways, he says. And then uh, the next verse, verse number 24, says, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast out for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Why? Because God, the one that orders the steps of the good man, the good woman, he says, I'm the one that's upholding you. So even when it seems like you're falling and you're not going to make it, he says, the Lord is the one that upholds him with his hand. Verse 25, he says, this is a Psalm of David. He says, I've been young and now am old. He says, but one thing I have discovered and I found out in my own life, he says, yet have I not seen the righteous. Well, who are the righteous, David? He says, those whose steps are ordered by the Lord. He says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. 